From the island in the desert, it's life punctuated at Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes from Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, it's the slam from our show inspired by the semicolon, recorded live on February 27th, 2018 at Jump in Boise, Idaho. During the slam, we randomly drew names, and the brave few came up and shared their story. And now, it's story time. Please welcome Isaiah Hobbs. Hi, my name is Isaiah, and uh, this is my semicolon tattoo, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. Um, I was 13 years old when I first felt the, uh, the effects of suicide. Someone very close to me, someone who I love dearly, died of suicide, and uh, being, a, being a kid, it was really hard to process, and one of the things that I remember hearing um, as we were kind of going through the grieving process was that this isn't something that happens in real life. It's something you read about on the news or you see in the movies. And uh, it, it kind of was that way. It kind of felt like that scene where things were happening in the background. You could see that there were still people, but it was kind of fading out into darkness and just the light shining just on me and kind of felt alone. And like while people were there, it didn't really feel like they were. And it was, uh, it was hard to process. Um, the grieving process is something that never really ends. Um, as years have gone by, I've been affected um, many different times, friends, family, coworkers, um, people I know, musicians who I looked up to, artists, actors, um, different people just dying of suicide. And it, it really affected me and one thing that I wanted to do was uh, try to get involved and see what I could do to maybe help out. And so I went to Google, started searching, uh, just different ways that I could help out, just get, um, get suicide prevention kind of in the forefront as much as I could. I found a, a bunch of different ways that I could get stickers and flyers, hand them out at concerts, hand them out at shows, started wearing t-shirts and having conversations with people about it. And uh, I, I think those conversations were very helpful to the people, but they were also very helpful to, to me as well. Um, one day as I was supposed to be working, I was on Facebook scrolling mindlessly as we sometimes do. And I saw this post from the uh, Idaho Suicide Prevention Hotline page about a, a tattoo that they were, a tattoo event that they were sponsoring or that they were having a part in. And it didn't really make sense to me. Uh, the suicide prevention hotline and tattoos don't really, you don't think of them together when you see one or the other. Um, but it was a semicolon project tattoo and I started researching it. Um, and the, the imagery that I found was very striking. Um, being an aspiring writer anyways, um, the semicolon is used when the author could have ended the sentence and started something new, or could have just stopped. But instead of choosing to end it, they carried on. And with suicide prevention, the semicolon project is the same. It's a representation of where someone could have stopped, but they carried on. And uh, 
as soon as I found that out, I definitely, I, I shared the post. I was thinking, yeah, I might get a, a couple people to like it or whatever, and that would be it. But within a couple days, I had friends opening up to me, telling me their personal stories um, about how they were impacted by suicide and how they wanted to come with me to get our tattoos. I had another friend who said that he had never been personally affected himself, but that he wanted to go with me for support as well. And, and that just meant the world to me. So the, the four of us got together, went down to Resurrection Tattoo. Within just a matter of a couple of minutes, they drew out the design, they had to sign all our paperwork, the tattoos were quick and easy. And uh, afterwards we went out to coffee and became, it, it was a sense of community, a sense of belonging that really, it was a bond that we didn't have before that we, we have something that we could share now. And this whole suicide prevention, anyone who's involved in it kind of gets that community feel involved. And it's a, a very beautiful thing. Um, over the years, as I've been more involved and uh, trying to get more involved in the suicide prevention, the meaning of the tattoo has changed a little bit for me. Originally when I got it, I, uh, I got it because my brother couldn't. But now I kind of wear it because I still can. Thank you. Cheyenne Lee. Uh, I'm Cheyenne. I heard about this event from my creative writing teacher and I told a story in class and she said, take it to Story Story Night. So that's what I'm doing. <laughs> Y'all are cutting into my time, guys. All right, I'll get started. Now, when I was younger, I had a very unusual childhood. When I was younger, like I'd say seven, eight years old, I had my own TV show. Like, I was the star of a TV show. It wasn't that difficult of a process to get. My dad was just, uh, uh, he was very good with cameras, and so he filmed me doing my own TV show. And one time, we went to Africa to do a special episode of this TV show. South Africa, specifically, uh, Lesotho, Africa. Some of you might be familiar, most of you won't be. So, when we got there, we went to a small little place called the Malayalea Lodge. It was a lovely place. They offered horseback riding, uh, like trips. So like two or three day trips, you camp at villages along the way and you ride horses there. And we did that for a couple of days. Um, so on the second day, the first day was completely uneventful. The first night we stayed at a very tiny little village in a very tiny little mud hut. And the second day, what, what had happened was we started leaving to head to the next village we were going to be at, and the groups kind of started to divide into one group of horses in the back and one group of horses in the front. Now, I'll try and keep this concise. Um, my dad and I stopped for lunch. We just let the rest of the group go. We stopped for lunch. We had our tour guide with us, whatever, it was fine. Um, so, uh, we were eating lunch, and some guy comes up over the hill He's screaming in a language my dad and I don't know, but our tour guide knew. So they started screaming at each other for a couple minutes, and then they, the guy took off. My tour guide looked at my dad and said, something's wrong, get on the horse, we're going. And then the tour guide took off, so that was fun. Uh, we both got on our horses. My dad grabbed the reins from me, because I was only like eight years old at the time, 
and he basically navigated both of our horses for two miles, so that was fun. When we got there, we found out what had happened was one of the girls who was in our group, her horse started to get fidgety, got spooked by something, and he took off and tried to get into the front group, and she fell off the horse, which wouldn't have been so bad, except she had her foot lodged too far in the stirrup. It dragged her for two miles across rocks and grass and creeks. It was not a pretty sight. So when we got there, when we found out after the fact, uh, her boyfriend had been doing CPR on her for about 30 minutes and he started freaking out, like totally having a panic attack. He could not go on. So my dad got me off the horse and he went and started doing CPR. Now, somewhere along the way, I tried to kind of signal for help, you know, uh, goodness knows where our tour guide went. Uh, I had been told someone had been trying to get a hol hel hol helicopter over there. There was only one helicopter at the, at the time in the entire nation of Lesotho, and someone was trying to go get it for this girl. And so my dad runs up to me and he tells me some of the locals had started to gather on top of the hill uh, right next to us. They had no idea what was going on. They were watching down. They didn't speak English. We couldn't explain what was happening. And they were wearing very brightly colored clothing. And we were trying to flag down a helicopter the whole time. And so my dad ran up to me and he told me, go up there on the hill and start waving around your hat or your jacket or something. Start trying to get them to wave their clothing around so that we can flag the helicopter down. And so I did that and it worked, actually. It worked. The helicopter came down and out of it popped our tour guide, who had gone to get the only helicopter in the country. <laughs> and so uh, they took her away, and this is a very concise story. I don't have a lot of time, but he, my dad had actually been doing CPR for four hours at this point. And so, understandably, most of, the, most of the tourists were a little bit fidgety about getting back on the horses, so we walked to a little convenience store slash mud hut that somehow had electricity about half a mile away, and we waited for the vans. And uh, a couple years ago, I decided to look this incident up. Her, uh, the girl, her name was Gemma Wilson. She died that night. She didn't make it. She made it to the hospital, but she didn't make it any further than that. And so I was thinking, and I was reading through the article, and first of all, they had some inconsistency there. First of all, the boyfriend was not doing CPR. Second of all, the family was trying to sue the Malayalea Lodge for not being safe. The lawsuit had gone on for quite a while, and I guess they gave up eventually, and that's kind of how this whole story ties into the theme, because they tried very hard to find anything that they could that said that their daughter's death was not her fault. And I'm not saying it was, but they tried so hard to find something, anything that said our daughter was not to blame, these people were to blame. And they went on this for years. Eventually, my dad found some footage of us the day before we left. He, um, the family had begun to claim that they didn't offer helmets and they didn't offer any specialized training to deal with horses. And my dad, a couple of years after the fact, he found, the, he found some footage of me riding with a helmet on provided by the Malaylay Lodge. And he also found some footage of me getting training with horses provided by the Malaylay Lodge. So he waited a couple of years, of course, until they could get over the tragedy and he submitted that footage to the family so that they kind of knew, they knew they had some closure, basically. And 
I spent a long time thinking about that, how they completely put their life on hold, pursuing this legal battle, trying to get some justification for their daughter's death. Her boyfriend had a ring in his pocket when she died. It was really a very tragic event. You can look up the article if you want. It's not all that, ar that accurate. Her name was Gemma Wilson. This happened in 2009, I think. It was, uh, I know a bunch of you are looking at the article right now going, hmm, you have some inconsistencies in your facts there. Yeah, I was there, all right? <laughs> so that is my story. It's Cameron G. I actually uh, met with Jody about possibly being a featured speaker for tonight. Uh, so my story is a little bit condensed from that. Uh, and it has to do with our first speaker too, you know, the, the semicolon movement and, and that having a lot of meaning for me now in my life. Uh, and, and my semicolon, mom, semicolon moment is a little different because it's more about, you know, the family you're born with and then the family you get to choose later in life if the family you're born with sucks. <laughs> and, and that was, <laughs> it, it was a pretty important distinction in my life. Um, my whole family didn't suck, just members of my family. Uh, but you know, I, I grew up uh, thinking that, that love was very tied to behavior and, and you had to be perfect to receive the love you know, that you really should have gotten unconditionally. And so it was very difficult to figure out what that was really about, you know, and, and what those, those moments that seemed to come so easily for other people were, were very difficult for me to learn about. Uh, and, and so, you know, through grade school and, and junior high, uh, you know, just, just trying to learn what those moments were and, and you know, realizing that, that the family that I would see when I would be at other people's houses and in public and things like that, that, that wasn't what my life was like. Uh, I haven't really even talked to my wife about this, so doing this in a room full of people probably wasn't the best, <laughs> the best place to start, but uh, it's harder than you would think sometimes. Thank God for the bright lights, I can't really see you. Uh, but I, I, I grew up in a very abusive house. And, and for a long time, I just kind of thought that that's what it was. Either you behaved and you were ignored, or you misbehaved and you were punished. And it wasn't until I became a teenager that I started to actually form those bonds with people that a lot of times you just form in your family. And I can say, uh, without a doubt that I'm here today because of some of the friends that I found along the way who never maybe knew what was going on but just were willing to accept my issues and, and not judge and not question and not push and just you know conditionally accepted who I was and I had a moment uh, when I was 16 that I had reached my breaking point and, and I was done. I wasn't, there was too much going on, there was too much pain, there was too much everything and, and I was ready to be done. And I, I reached out to a friend 
just to kind of say hi. And uh, I'll never, I'll never know how he knew that that's where I was because I just called to, you know, see what he was doing, very casual, uh, not really realizing how much I really needed him to pick up on what I wasn't saying, but he did. And he actually came by and picked me up and, uh, and he put me back together that night. He just wouldn't let me be alone. We never, we didn't talk about it. We, we didn't talk about any of it. He was just there. And, and I, I, I have realized that sometimes it's those smallest moments where someone just shows that little bit of compassion uh, that, that can just help you get over that really dark moment in your life. And sometimes you might not realize that you are that person for someone else. And as I was putting the story together and talking with Jody uh, about it, I actually called him and, uh, and I thanked him. I said, I don't know if you remember this night, but I can say that I am here today because you were there for me that night. And, and he understood that, you know, that night was a rough night for me, but until he and I had that phone conversation, he didn't realize what an impact that night was for me. And, uh, you know, it was, it was nice, you know, 25 years later, dating myself a little bit here, to finally be able to tell him thank you, and that because of him, my story goes on. Please welcome to the stage, Fred. I just got a text from Club Luck. And Club Luck is uh, Willie Nelson's fan club, for any of y'all that don't know. Um, you know, and I've been a fan of Willie's since, since I was a little kid. And it, it was always a dream of mine to go see him in concert. In 1973, I was in San Marcos, Texas, going to college at Southwest Texas State University, majoring in art. And it's also the home of the Chalimpiad, which is the state chili cook-off, where you, uh, <clears throat> you win the privilege to go to Terlingua to the world chili cook-off. Anyway, as part of uh, my life at that time and being poor and paying for tuition and uh, paying my rent and couldn't afford a can of beans or a can of beer, I had a job uh, working at the Hayes County Citizen newspaper. And uh, we had just printed the, uh, the advertisement for the Chalimpiad for that year. And, and right on there, I saw Willie was going to be in concert. And so it was like, how can I get the money to go see Willie Nelson? You know, and uh, on the radio was his music all the time, Whiskey River and uh, Bloody Mary Morning all the time going through my head. And I was back working on the the press one day and uh, one of my bosses came up and said uh, we got an idea of how you can go see Willie Nelson and I was just like oh boy I can't wait and so I went up there they called me up to the front of the office and they said uh, we want you to be the chili queen for the newspaper <laughs> Miss Chili Consafos 
because uh, Kinsafos was the uh, was an article in the paper that was kind of the, the gossip column, and so they thought it would be cool to have a guy be the chili queen. So I thought about it for a minute, and they said, "We'll give you two tickets to see Willie Nelson," and it was like, "Well, let's see." we'll throw in a bottle of tequila. I said, I'll do it. <laughs> so they said, meet here Saturday morning of the parade and we'll get you fixed up. So I showed up and they had this, they had these little black peasant shoes and they had a multicolored skirt, long skirt. Um, they had a little white cotton top with little flowers embroidered on it and a lace shawl. And the advertising director who came up with this great idea uh, had a little 1962 Chevy Nova convertible. And so she was driving and I was gonna ride in the back in the parade. So they get me all dressed up and we, we drive over to uh, the, the university where everybody was lining up for the parade. And I'm sitting in the back and Cecil took off to get us something to drink. So as I'm sitting there, a guy goes walking by and he's got these cameras hanging around his neck and I recognize him, he was a cameraman from the Austin American Statesman. And he kind of looks and he stops and he turns back and he picks up one of his cameras and just goes click 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 and he puts it grabs the next one click 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 and then he just kind of laughs to himself waves and walks off and so I figured I better start practicing the wave so uh, I put the shawl on Cecil comes back and we take off and we go uh, around the university campus and downtown around the the square waving and, and smiling at everybody in the classic uh, um, royalty wave and smile. And uh, we make it out to the, uh, to the Chalympiad grounds uh, where they were gonna preparing for the concert that night. So I got out of my Chili Queen outfit, got into my celebration outfit, uh, broke open the tequila and, and got ready for the concert that night. Got right up in the front. I mean, the concert wasn't until 8 o'clock, and I was there at 6, right at the, in front of the door. So I got inside, got up next to the stage, and Willie was great. Started out, like always, with uh, uh, Whiskey River. That was his, his main song that he started almost every show with at that time. And, and I was just in dreamland for the whole show. Um, and then I'd never been, so I really didn't know what happened after that. And, and I turned after the show and everybody left and here was Willie over at the side of the stage signing autographs. So I went and got in line <clears throat> and uh, I didn't have anything for Willie to sign. So the only thing I had was my belt. So I took my belt off, which I had made and uh, I was gonna give to my brother. I thought, well, this, this will make it even extra special. And so Willie signed it, and, uh, and it was just a, a dream night. Well, I, I finally graduated in 1976, and as luck would have it, uh, I became a VISTA volunteer in Lewiston, Idaho. So I moved up here, uh, 
looking for, for Willie to, to show up and so I could go see him and have a little bit of Texas with me. Um, and I get a letter in the mail from Sam Marcus, Texas. Um, and I open it up and there's two things in there. One, a picture of the Chili Queen. And it was like, haunted me for all these years. <clears throat> two was a letter from one of the editors that had been standing on the courthouse square as we had driven around and waved and smiled. And she said, there was a little lady standing next to me as y'all went by. And she turned to me and said, she isn't very pretty, is she? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to our stage, Brooke Linville. First, I wanted to say thank you to Jody and to Story Story Night for creating this incredible space for people to share their stories. I think it's really important, especially in this sort of space that our world is in right now, to have spaces where we can hold each other's stories. I think it's really important. Um, I'm taking a little different sort of idea on the semicolon and looking at it as a before, a pause, and an after. I've had a few different semicolon years, I call them. Um, my life before, then it happened, and then after. 2008 was one of my semicolon years, started off sort of normal. I was teaching and I got pregnant, not normal, but um, not overly um, eventful given what happened later. Um, pregnant, teaching, my life was sort of on track. And then my semicolon moment, August 25th, 2008. If you've lived here for 10 years, you might know um, the story I'm about to tell. I was driving home with my then husband in my blue Prius from eating at Andrade's. The wind was howling, it was 50 miles an hour, um, in, incredibly um, blustery, um, not normal. I was driving on Federal Way, um, driving home. My dog, or my dog was in the house, um, not normal. And I see smoke, not normal. My then husband says, it's fine, it's fine. I say, I don't think it's fine. And I start racing towards our home in Oregon Trail Heights, right next to Columbia Village. I think, let's turn down this road, because that's the way I would go home normally. And then I realized it was a fire and that people were going to be flooding into our neighborhood and that I probably couldn't get home if I went the normal way. So I went a different way. I went the, the alternate route into Columbia Village, speeding through the neighborhood by Simplot Field, trying to get home. I race into the neighborhood. By the, by the time that we get there, the smoke is so thick that I nearly hit the fire truck that's right in front of our car. I send my then husband racing into our house. I yell, get the animals in the photos. And we also had a cat. Um, said, please go get them. Um, 
didn't seem abnormal to send someone to a fire, but you do things in, in those moments that you later go, what, what am I thinking? Um, he raced off into the smoke. Um, my neighbor's house was engulfed in flames, throwing, um, throwing fire basically into the sky. Um, I drove around trying to get in. My cat, I knew I needed to be there. My uh, husband couldn't get it, so I knew I needed to get in. I was seven and a half, maybe months pregnant at that time. I should not be running into a fire. Um, got around the other way, and my neighbor thankfully ran into my car, literally said, you cannot go in there, and, and I didn't. Um, I took my Prius, and I, I would start and stop, waiting for my uh, husband, his phone died while he was in the house, um, and so I just had to wait. I stood there and waited. I drove five feet, got out, dry heaved, drove five feet, got out, dry heaved, waiting, waiting, waiting. Um, I decided to wait in the uh, spot where um, three roads converged because we had no plan. We had no way to, to meet up with each other. This wasn't a contingency we had ever uh, thought about. And no matter how many fire drills we did in school, it just is something that you believe will never happen to you. Thankfully, five minutes later, um, my husband drove out with my dog in the car. Five or six photo albums. That was my life. That was what was left of my life. My home was gone. My baby was due. And we had to start over before, after. My life stopped in that semicolon moment. It's been almost 10 years. This summer will be the 10 year anniversary of that fire. 10 homes gone, one woman died. And I was thinking tonight, when we're talking about the semicolon movement, um, you know, the, the fire was a, was a PTSD moment for me. I, I still struggle with, with some mental health and anxiety related to that fire. Um, but what I think that the semicolon moment does for everyone, whether it's a mental health moment or another kind of semicolon, another kind of pause before and after, is that it allows us to talk openly about it, um, to, to honor it, um, and, and maybe even celebrate it, um, celebrate the pause and the after. Um, and I'm grateful for that. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by our story party, Amy Moran, Karis Kimball, Hannah Mae Schaefer, Karen Moore, Marnie Ellis, and me, Jody Eichelberger. We receive support from the Boise Arts and History Department. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, our season sponsor, Pettit Group Real Estate, and the semicolon show sponsor, Pure Bar. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello, and our musical guest was Gary Tackett. Support this storied program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Story Story Night.